It's fair to say that my eyes have been opened by getting the opportunity to pull together this series on the great Irish people behind aviation. And while we have met the business leaders, the innovators and the deal makers who all share the same passion and feeling I described in episode one, we haven't scratched the surface in terms of the wealth of Irish talent in cockpits, on the tarmac, in the cabin and behind the scenes. And that's why I thought Margaret O'Shaughnessy of the Foynes Flying Boat Museum would be the perfect way to close season one. Foynes Flying Boat and Maritime Museum in Foynes, in Limerick, is the brainchild of Margaret O'Shaughnessy. She is one of those incredibly passionate and driven Irish people who gets things done. The kind of Irish person you take for granted until you leave the country and realise how rare they truly are. Here she tells me the incredible history of the first international airport in Ireland, the birth of Irish coffee, and the key role that Hollywood star Maureen O'Hara played in the legacy of the museum. On July 8th, 1989, the late Hollywood star Maureen O'Hara Blair officially opened the museum at a colourful ceremony attended by hundreds of overseas and local dignitaries. And ever since, this museum, and Margaret O'Shaughnessy, my guest today, has been reminding people of the special place that Ireland itself plays in the aviation industry. Margaret O'Shaughnessy, it is fantastic to have you on the show. A pretty unusual episode for us, but your your museum is pretty unusual in itself. Can you tell us a little bit about how it came to be and how you came to be involved? I suppose, Charlotte, I, I worked in the bank and I moved back to my village finds after getting married and got involved in community work and the building of the sports complex. And it was really by chance in that um, we had a great county manager at the time to Catherine and we had lunch one day after the museum after the sports centre opened and he said to me you should do something else what could it be and off the top of my head and I had no idea where this came from I said a museum and I wouldn't have been a huge visitor to museums so it wasn't that I had a great love of museums mm. and uh, he said uh, about what and I said about the thing which came uh, and that is we were Ireland's first international airport uh, and that's a huge theme uh, of history. So he said, drop me a letter. And I did. And we organised a meeting in, that, in 1987. Now, we became aware that the 50th anniversary of the first passenger flights was coming up in 89. As you said, the 8th of July. So we said, look, get the skids on. Now, I have to be honest, Charlotte. I thought this would be a little thing. We'd open up, mm. get going and that piece. Uh, but... There was one other fantastic Irishman in this region, Dr. Tony Ryan, Dr. Tony Ryan, GPA. And two of the people that I had chosen, or not, had volunteered to help me with this, were Brian Cullen from Killaloo and PJ McGoldrick, who was later to become CEO of Ryanair. Mm. And uh, they approached Dr. Tony Ryan. I wouldn't have had the influence or the way of doing that. And TPA uh, came on board with £50,000. Wow. And that is how we started it. And that was when £50,000 uh, was £50,000, right? That that was it's really the... and went a long way. Yeah, yeah. that's now the seed we, money we that grows this. borrow money. Yeah, we had to go to banks and things to get money. But we got four outhouses, and I mean, I have photographs here, but I mean, much floors, no, nothing in them. And we converted them into 
a reception area, a small little museum, and two exhibition rooms. And we opened to great fanfare, as you said, with Maureen O'Hara Blair and uh, Ambassador Hitler, the American ambassador, who, funnily enough, was Margaret O'Shaughton seen before she married Hitler, <laughs> uh, cutting the ribbon on the day. But the nice thing about that was we had hundreds, but the hundreds included so many former staff and crews from those early flying boat days. Lots from EOAC and a huge amount of planning came to find and came back. And I must say, it was one of the most extraordinary days in that people were meeting up after possibly 13, 40 years. Mm. And uh, all I'm sorry for, and I really am, is that it was such a hectic day that we didn't have time to sit down with each individual one and record their memories and things. But some of them became lifelong friends until they passed away. Well, let's, let's dig into what those memories are, because... At the end of the day, uh, that you've given us a beautiful outline of how the museum comes to be. But what I'm surprised at, and even in terms of myself, is how little I knew of this special place, this first international airport that was created at Foynes. What can you what can you tell us about why it came to be? I know I've got a certain amount of information myself, but I want people to hear it from you as to why planes had to land at Foynes to begin with. But I suppose it goes back to the, the, the force that was Pan American Airlines at that time in one trip. And he engaged Lindbergh uh, to go to Europe and to search out suitable places that he hoped to fly these flying boats, which were luxurious monstrosities of planes mm. that could take on maybe 20, 25 passengers across the Atlantic in utmost luxury, but that could land on water. Now, saying land on mean they could land in every kind of water. There had to be certain conditions. It had to be sheltered, you know. There had to be facilities and all of that. And Lindbergh did. And Lindbergh looked at Galway. He looked at Cork. He looked at Kerry. And he looked at Fines. And we were, I suppose, fortunate because Fines was already a, a commercial port. A small one, but a commercial port. We had uh, a train service. We had Shell and Esso and all the... The major oil companies had bases here in tanks and they imported oil here. So there was quite a few things in our favour. The, 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 um, the runway, if to call it that, but the waterway that they would land in was sheltered by an island which is just off the mainland here. So there was a channel that provided great uh, shelter from storms. And we didn't move well up the river. You know, we mm. weren't out on the, on the Atlantic. We were up the estuary. So, um, and Limerick City was pushing distance to trade people to. So they were some of the factors. And of course, it's an unusual story, Charlotte, in that once that started to move, uh, the big, big question was, who was going to be the first mm. to cross the Atlantic with passengers? Now, we're very fortunate in the museum that we have the original map, which is all outlined and signed by both pilots from in Imperial areas and from Pan Am. But the thing was, that went on for quite some time. And eventually, I don't know, said, listen guys, will you both do it together from opposite sides? And that's how they solved that problem. And so Imperial left and came on here and went on to Boston in New York and Pan Am did the same coming the other way. Wow. So they passed one another mid-Atlantic without ever communicating. Wow. And that, but that part of it, I suppose... The other part of why it's 
not known as much as it should be. Remember, this was July 89, and by September 89, the Second World War had started. So now, whatever it was about fines in July, it really came into play in September because they needed to keep fines uh, open, operational all through the war. And Ireland being a neutral country proved to be a, a problem at times, but not really, in that people don't realise that Imperial Airways later to become the OEC, not alone were the airlines flying the Atlantic to find, they also were the airport operators. They actually operated the airport here in science right through the war. Right. And uh, so that would create massive employment in the in the town and uh, excitement, I'd imagine. I mean, I'm looking here at some of the passengers that passed through on those, yeah. as you said, I mean, these are luxurious, expensive flights. The names that I'm seeing here are Bob Hope, Gracie Fields and John F. Kennedy himself. Yeah. I mean, would yeah. they get yeah. off the and planes at, at Foynes or would they? Uh, what, what was the crack there? Like, obviously, they need to stretch what? the legs once they once they land. Yeah, well, this was the whole reason. This building that I'm talking to you from, the museum building, was the Montego Arms Hotel. Now, not a luxurious five-star hotel, it's really northern today, Charles. It was basic because we had the passenger train men. So people would come and they took their horse and carriage into the courtyard of the building. There was, it was a kind of a square building, it was a big courtyard, and take the train to Limerick to their shop and, you know, and come back. So hmm. it was, but the government took this over by compulsory purchase and made us the airport. Uh, and they put up a control tower and they put in radio and all of that and security was extremely tight that the army was sent here and they used to have sentries at the bottom of the stairs on the way up to the radio rooms and that because during the war you didn't know what could happen and you had to have a special pass to tell the sentry or a code I should say to get up to the radio room but more importantly there was another young man from Clare called Brendan O'Regan and Brendan O'Regan, I suppose, is one of our greatest Irishmen ever. Uh, and sadly, of course, no longer with us. But Brendan was a young, dapper hotel manager in Dublin. And we also, of course, had within the political system, we had De Valera, who was a huge fan of aviation, but also in the maths. And they knew about O'Regan and they frequented the restaurant where he was. And they sent him down to Fines to establish uh, a restaurant within the upward building. And can I say that in those days, this was a superb first-class restaurant. We have beautiful photographs of this and all of that. And he took on staff. Now, I'll deviate just for a second, Charlotte, because no we're on this. And he implied a young chef from Catholic Jargon come to Tyrone, called Joe Sheridan. And Joe Sheridan never liked the fact he was taking a lot of instructions from much younger boss. He was always trying to impress but part of that anyway, but part of the story. But these tides crossing the Atlantic, once they left Fines, they left here late for security during the war, and they arrived here early morning as most transatlantic does today. But should they remember they're not pressurized, they didn't fly 34,000 to 38,000 feet as they do today, uh, it was only a few thousand feet, they often left, encountered extremely bad weather conditions, mm. and would turn back to Fines. And that happened in October of 1943. And Chef Joe Sheridan was called back into work with a lot of the restaurant staff and told to clear food and drink for these weary passengers. Remember, if you fly way out for six or seven hours, you turn back, you've been flying 
12, 14 hours, you got nowhere. And that is how the whole story of Irish coffee was invented here. I mean, that, so I, I did want to weather. get to that. I didn't realize that that's that's I only I actually thought that that was a bit of a legend uh, until I had the chance no. to dig into this. So that Foynes is credited yeah, yeah. as the birthplace. <laughs> Whatever about this, this achievement with the airport, uh, that'll perk listeners ears up. Uh, is that is that now confirmed that that's where it all began? Absolutely. Brendan Oregon has a confirmed trust. Brendan O'Regan gave me a portrait of Joe Sheridan that he had signed in the back of it. Joe Sheridan worked here for a few years and did transfer to Wainana or Shannon Airport. That's the other thing, Charlotte, just so there's no confusion. Fines was officially known as the Shannon Airport Fines. Okay. And when flying boats did finish and land plane began to operate, they moved across the river to Wainana. And but 10 years later, before Wainana changed their name to Shannon Airport, so you often hear people say, but Irish coffee was invented in Shannon. It was, but it was Shannon Floyd's. Wow. Wow. Now, Maureen O'Hara is a name I mentioned at the start there as uh, being there yeah. for the opening. She really was integral to this. Can you talk to us a little bit about her place in the history of the Foynes Flying Boat Museum? Okay. Well, I suppose I should start by saying that she married one of the most extraordinary pilots of the Flying Boat era, Charlie Blair, Captain Charles Blair. And he flew for American export, American overseas, and later Pan Am. And Charlie still holds, well, of course he does, he holds the three fastest records on the Atlantic for flights. He also flew in a course, the first ever non-stop flight of the Atlantic with passengers from Collins. So she married him. Uh, I wouldn't have known them. I know that in 1976, Charlie Blair and Maureen O'Hara flew flying boat back into Foynes. I was married a year and living here, so I saw him in a far distance. I wasn't a dignitary or anything. Mm. I couldn't do some more uh, on the pier when they did arrive, and that was the only time I ever saw Maureen O'Hara. But when this idea of the flying boat museum started to get going in my head, uh, I thought I need someone here that can open doors and do things to me. And Pan Am was still flying in those days and they Trevor Lewis was their manager, station manager at Shannon Airport. And I went to meet him and I said, and he said, you know, I know a woman who would love to help out in this. And that's how Maureen O'Hara's name came into the equation. He gave me her number in King Garrison car where she every summer. I eventually picked up the courage to call it because my age group would very much know who Maureen O'Hara is. Today is Mike Knott. But to me, she was a big Hollywood movie star. And I called her Janice and I introduced myself. Once I fixed points, the years had picked up with her. And I told her what I was trying to do. And she said, I'm fully behind you. Stop thinking about it and do it. She wow. was a very determined woman. And from that day in 1987 until she died in 2015, we were the best and the closest of friends. And I admired her greatly. Now, she never failed to give the museum media attention uh, in anything she did. And she never failed to give us every... I think she missed one year when she was ill and couldn't come. But she came every year and we celebrated her birthday here every August at the museum when we used to have this big international Irish coffee festival as well. She she so, is obviously uh, an extraordinary person, an amazing person to be friends with and have spent that time with. Uh, there's what do you remember of her connection to Foynes? Like what was it that made 
finds pricker ears in that moment. Charlie Blair, Charlie Blair, Charlie Blair, absolutely, she said, absolutely adored finds. And when he was dying in here in the sign box in, in, in from 40 on, he became great friends with Brendan O'Regan and all these people. And he was, as she said it in, in our museum books, he was the last to leave. He took the last passenger flight on the North Atlantic out of here in October 1945. But he was the first to come back in 1976 with his sign box. So she, she held that greatly to her heart. And she said, they used to play Charlie with the God that walks on water. Uh, but I do know from talking to so many people, even still the few that are still alive from those days, uh, Charlie Blair was a charmer. He was a daredevil pilot. And of course he was safe, but he was the first man ever enough to fly over the North Pole. And as she told me, he took the letters for Santa from the kids <laughs> and threw them up the window. <laughs> but he, he, I mean, there's so many stories, Charlotte. But she, she, um, she gave me his memorabilia, his Thurlow Award here, and his distinguished flying cross and his uniform. But we have all that memorabilia on display in the museum. Hmm. And now we've been uh, increases all Maureen's memorabilia. And uh, well, before this COVID-19, which is all, uh, we, we're working very hard at building another wing that will um, put hers on display. But also, before I forget it, because I can wander off different ways, there's so many stories about signs. Um, for instance, you asked about famous passengers, and lots of them would get off here. Uh, and only recently, we, see, we're still building uh, this magnificent archive and library on aviation. I have all the original weather charts from 1937 to 45, daily charts signed here in, in the archive. So we often get people coming if they're writing a novel, for instance, Charlotte. Mm. No interest in aviation. But they find out we have these and they come to look at the weather conditions if they're writing about them. So we have built up an amazing... People have come back from all over the world and handed us their collections. So we have um, a record of all the flights, when they came in, when they went out, uh, what time they came in, what day they came in, you know, all... Because the harbour master in the finds decided... He wasn't going to change his system just because they were planes. So he logged them in and out just the same as he did all the boats. Well, you so know, we had massive archive. It is an extraordinary thing and it is an extraordinary place. I mean, uh, it employs it employs an awful lot of people and it sees an awful lot of visitors. And we will talk about the impact of COVID on them. But I do want to talk about you because it doesn't happen without you. Whatever about Maureen. It doesn't happen without you and that idea. Where did that come from? I mean, you could have said anything in that moment, but you said yeah. this. What was it about uh, aviation that fascinated you then and continues to fascinate you now? Well, let me tell you, I can be a very nervous sire. I've <laughs> lots of people have come in here in small two feet said, Well, it takes for a spin at the annual and do it another time. <laughs> I would be quite nervous though. It's not that I'm the greatest at and I have to tell you a funny story. When I was over in New York with Maureen collecting what she was giving me in nineteen eighty eight, uh, belonged to Charlie Blair, you'll enjoy this, I think. I was coming back with her lingus from JFK. And she said to me, don't put them in as check luggage because as sure as God, Erling will lose them, <laughs> right? And I said, if you could imagine this now, 
I had a parachute in, in a green bag with parachute written on it, right? Mm-hmm. I also had an oxygen mask and all that paraphernalia, and I had a pilot's bag. So I was, I was getting on the flight in, in JFK, and there was this guy at the air down along the damage, you know, standing there, and um, we, we queued up for a minute, and he tipped me on the shoulder, and he said, uh, are you a nervous flyer? And I wasn't thinking, I said, I'm not too bad. Well, he said, it's a long time since someone got on an Aer Lingus flight with their own parachute and helmet. <laughs> 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 These are so many funny things that have happened us over the years, but um, I suppose as a child, Charlotte, um, I was actually born in London in Hammersmith. My parents immigrated uh, singly uh, in the 50s and got married in London. I was born in Hammersmith, but they came back when I was just under a year for holidays and decided to stay home. But uh, I had a grandfather who was uh, from a farming background and was a fantastic horseman. Now, if you think about it, Charles, a village of 400 people in the countryside in Ireland becomes an international airport. There was one telephone in the village, in the post office, and one here. There were, you know, you have to think of the time it was. You know, 1939, different times. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, when all the staff would go home at five o'clock, I mean, it's a slice had to come in for refueling, or, by the way, the RAF did land here a few times. If, they, if anything happened and they needed to get the staff back in, they couldn't pick up the mobile phone or the computer or anything like that. So they had to devise their own way of doing this. So what they did was, BOAC took my grandfather on as an employee and his horse. <sighs> and he went out on horseback to the various places that they were staying and called to me. So he was the Paul Revere of Wines, if you like, at the time. Wow. Well, as a child growing up, he'd often talk about airways. Now, I suppose as a child, you don't fully understand what airways was. But as I got older, I understood that this village was vital to passenger travel, to connecting America, England and Ireland all through the Second World War. And that it had created lots of firsts, you know, first air mills, Irish caveats. And there wasn't even a track on a wall. To say this is where it happened. Really? Nothing? Not no, even nothing. just you know, one of those not little benches? Stamp. Nothing? Not a postcard. Nothing. When I, I mean, I had the audacity to say I'd open a museum with that publicity. But I got to contact, I'd contact you and you'd tell me about Joe and Nick and Jack. And it went on like that for over a year. And eventually I, I got through to so many and they said, look, we have this and I have that. And I had great designers, Jack Harrison designed the museum, and he was really into the subject. So we started with, as I told you, four rooms, four staff, and seven and a half thousand visitors that first year. Wow. But we had very little. You know, we were coming to a flangboat museum, but we didn't have a flangboat. Now, we had a full-size website, you know, where they come. I mean, we'd had everyone and anyone coming for that. But I suppose I, I took a gamble, but... I am a determined person, and I, I never kind of say, you can't do that. Mm. I always say, let's try it. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots of people listening, or people will tell you that know me. If they hear them on the phone, they run a mile. Well. Because I'm always begging. <laughs> well. I'm not begging for me. I'm not begging. I'm begging for the museum. Mm. Now there's 26 staff. It now has 60,000 visitors. Uh, 
and it's a huge asset to Limerick and to Ireland. Mm. And I thought people say, I came on a cruise ship because it was calling the trines or calling in Cork and I could get to see it. So we have, um, I have to say that at this time, I buried the very last of the original fine staff uh, last year in Martin's Vineyard. And that was Lana Jowley, and she was a ground hostess here. So all these people have kept coming back to me for the last 30 years. They've given me a lot of their stories, their memories. Uh, and all I can say is that it was like a little Casablanca, hmm. you know, at that time. And it really because is. Because you couldn't fly from America to Europe without coming in here Absolutely. on a commercial flight. Yeah. Now, Gracie Fields, you asked me a long time ago, and I didn't tell you. Gracie Fields used to go to the local butcher here, uh, Bill Sheehan. And she gets a big parcel of meat to take back in the, the side to England. I know that for a fact. And I know she acted the same down on the pier for the locals. But, you know, they had bartram going on as well. Because we had things like meat and things. So I want to say plentiful was available here. Where silk stockings, for instance, were not. So the, the, the stewards on board would bring in the silk stockings and the lads here would give them the bit of meat. They, they did their own little bartram. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing and it it is the only museum of its kind in the world. And as you say, employing 26 people and 60,000 visitors is no mean feat. Uh, It is scary times, though. Uh, I I know that you've you've barely been open. Uh, Can you talk to us about the impact that the current situation has had upon the museum and yourself? Impact has had a massive effect on all the world at this stage. Uh, on us here particularly, um, we had to close uh, with government regulations last March. We got open again on the 1st of July and we closed again in September. So I think about 10 or 11 weeks of trading, such because our life does. While we are registered charity jars in Ireland and in America, and we get lots of small donations, people don't have us, but... We do get bits from now and then. But our, our, our whole existence depends on trading, depends on our visitors coming in the door paying, and depends on our shopping coming out of that. And we actually put back the restaurant to where Brendan O'Regan originally put the original restaurant as well. So that's how we live, uh, and that's how we support ourselves. Um, we do get the subvention from uh, the government through the Department of Culture and that. Um, but we can back more in, in payroll taxes and VAT to the state than we get from them. Mm. Uh, so we found ourselves in, in a very precarious situation, but I have to be honest, say the government here, I think the best thing they ever did was giving us the waste subsidy uh, so that we were able to get um, funding towards keeping the, the vital people uh, in time. So there are four of us still working from home and in and out of the office, whereas all the rest of the staff are on the... Um, COVID pins. Um, but our problem, you see, it's not just now, and I think people are all waiting for the vaccine and waiting for this, but for us, it's um, 79% of our visitors of that 60,000 in 2019 are overseas. People come from overseas. Mm. They come in bus tours. That's our big business. Because we don't have the public transport out to this village that we should have. Mm. So they either come in a car only a bus. And that's gone. And we'll be gone in 21, I think, as well. At this time of the year, tour operators would have their bookings into us what? from England. 
and some America and there's none. Well, we, so we, have, an, we have a choice in this and we do have, you know, we have seen a shift in Irish tourism. Last summer, mm-hmm. I had the absolute joy of getting to spend the entirety of my holidays in Ireland with my family. And I could just feel the shift towards people appreciating yeah. what is on their doorstep. And yeah. honest to God, if the Foynes Museum isn't Flying Boat Museum isn't one thing that you visit this summer or this spring, then you're really missing out. I mean, it's right there. As you say, there mightn't be public transport out that direction as much as you'd like. But I mean, people are avoiding public transport. So uh, if I could yeah. ask the listeners to do anything, it's make this part of your next trip home, uh, because once once you are open, uh, Margaret, you're going to rely on it and you're going to need us. It's essentially uh, crowdfunded by Irish people is what we need now. And for you to get your arse in gear and go down and visit the Foynes Flying Boat and Maritime Museum and see what uh, this 30 year journey uh, is for yourself. Margaret, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to do it. And I hope that uh, I'll bring Tina and Mikey, my wife and son, down there this summer. We look forward to welcoming you and meeting you, Charles. And thank you for the opportunity. This is our lifeblood to get the word out always. And media have been very good to me over many, many years. That's it for season one of The Flying Irishman. A huge thank you to Margaret O'Shaughnessy for this final episode of season one, to Deck Ryan, to Ellen James, to Tina and Mikey, to Descript, to Epidemic Sounds, but specifically to Deck Ryan and Ellen James. Ellen did incredible work in pulling together our latest guests and really rounding out this season. It's been such a pleasure to do it and such an eye opener. If you enjoyed it, please share it. Pass it on to people you think might enjoy it. Uh, and let us spread the word about the great Irish people in aviation. To hear more of my interviews, it's easy. Go to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Music on this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. Sound production, editing and research by Jarlath Regan. Sincere thanks once again to Deck Ryan and Ellen James. Flying Irishman is an Irishman Abroad podcast. Email irishmanabroadpodcast at gmail.com to contact Jarlath directly. 